But before we read, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift of your word. We read in your word today of the many blessings that you have promised to your faithful people. As we read and study your word, help us to be obedient to your teachings. Father, we are richly blessed and we thank you and praise you, especially for your great goodness to us in your gift of the living word, our Lord Jesus, that in his atoning death and resurrection, we can know our sins forgiven and have our hope of eternal life. Thank you that we can have that assurance as we trust in you. We pray for James as he brings your message to us. Soften our hearts, convict us where we need convicting, that we might live lives honouring to you. Father, keep us from idols. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So Deuteronomy 28 from verse 1. If you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all his commands I give you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations on earth. All these blessings will come on you and accompany you if you obey the Lord your God. You will be blessed in the city and blessed in the country. The fruit of your womb will be blessed and the crops of your land and the young of your livestock, the calves of your herds and the lambs of your flocks. Your basket and your kneading trough will be blessed. You'll be blessed when you come in and blessed when you go out. The Lord will grant that the enemies who rise up against you will be defeated before you. They will come at you from one direction, but flee from you in seven. The Lord will send a blessing on your barns and on everything you put your hand to. The Lord your God will bless you in the land he is giving you. The Lord will establish you as his holy people, as he promised you on oath, if you keep the commands of the Lord your God and walk in obedience to him. Then all the peoples on earth will see that you are called by the name of the Lord and they will fear you. The Lord will grant you abundant prosperity in the fruit of your womb, the young of your livestock and the crops of your ground, in the land he swore to your ancestors to give you. The Lord will open the heavens, the storehouse of his bounty, to send rain on your land in season and to bless all the work of your hands. You will lend to many nations, but will borrow from none. The Lord will make you the head, not the tail. If you pay attention to the commands of the Lord your God that I give you this day and carefully follow them, you will always be at the top, never at the bottom. Do not turn aside from any of the commands I give you today, to the right or to the left, following other gods and serving them. Alrighty. Well, good morning again, everyone, especially warm uh, welcome to all the regular night church people who are here this morning so they can watch the Broncos game later this evening. Good job making a way to get to church. Uh, good job. Uh, so no, uh, that will be fun later on. Of course, this is the second part of a sermon that I started last week. Not so much a two-part sermon, but more like part two of the same sermon. Uh, so this week we're looking at the blessings of wealth, but last week we looked at the dangers of wealth. And I'll recap that uh, very briefly in just a moment. But kids, as always, during the holidays, it is so awesome to have you guys with us. And I have a question for the kids. Uh, if any of you have seen uh, that show Parental Guidance, where you put like 
your kids through tests to see what your parenting looks like. Um, no pressure, parents, but this could be you right now. Uh, kids, if you had a million dollars right now, what would you buy for it? Is there any brave kids that want to tell me if they had a million dollars right now, what they would do with it? Yes, Zoe? You'd buy a house, okay. Maybe an Ipswich, sure, yep. Um, <laughs> yep. Uh, no, 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 no digs on Ipswich. I'm just, you know, sorry. Yep, what, what do you think, but Damien? A, did you say a phone? A phone for a million bucks. You could probably get a pretty good phone for a million bucks. That's not a bad choice. Yep, Tommy? An Xbox, excellent choice, yep. Uh, let's see, who else we got here? Yep, Josh? Apple shares, ooh, I like it. Thinking of future, investment. Good, good, good. Last one, Arthur? Bread and chocolate, another amazing choice. Little bread and chocolate pudding, maybe put them together. Amazing stuff, awesome, okay? There's lots of things that you could do if you had a million dollars. Evaluate those children's parents' value systems uh, as you like. Uh, now, here's the thing. We looked, one of the things we looked at last week is that for Australians, we are uh, very, very wealthy. Uh, so we talked a little bit about how Australia has been called the, the lucky country. Uh, we, we talked about how that's a phrase that's been around since the 1960s. But it's not actually a super positive assessment of Australia because the reason that we're the lucky country is that we've managed to get very, very wealthy despite not being particularly good at any of the things that normally build wealth. Uh, so this was a summary of the, this book from Donald Howe from back in the 60s. While other industrialized nations created wealth using clever means such as technology and other innovations, Australia did not. Rather, Australia's economic prosperity was largely derived from its rich natural resources and immigration. Horn observed that Australia showed less enterprise than almost any other prosperous industrial society. And according to this article from 2023, basically still the same. We still rank really low when it comes to innovation and entrepreneurship and, and all these different sort of things. So Australia is among the richest people in the world, uh, but this is true despite the fact that we lack all these things that normally build wealth. But what's interesting is, is that when you look more globally, it turns out this is a really common phenomenon, that wealth is not necessarily tied just to skill and merit. So we talked about how of the 75 richest people in human history, uh, 14 of them are Americans born within this one decade span, mainly because they just happened to be alive when the railroad system was really getting going and when Wall Street was invented. And similarly, when you look at some of the wealthiest people in the world today uh, in computer technology, they were born in this little three-year window that gave them an advantage over all their competitors because they were the right age at the right time to make the most of the opportunities that were presented to them. So we talk about wealth as a product of context every bit as much as it is individual effort and talent, and that's worth remembering when we think about how wealthy we are. And so we put up some stats. You know, if you earn the average uh, income for a household here in the six suburbs that surround our church, that puts you in the top 3.2% for wealth of the global population. And if you make 200000 which is what many of us do if we're honest, that puts you in the top 1.4% of the global population. Even if you're in the poverty line here in these suburbs surrounding us, you're still within the top 75%. I mean, it's amazing just how wealthy we actually are. And so last week we looked at this idea and that, and that means that when we read this passage in 1 Timothy that, that says, command those who are rich to be wary 
of what the love of money can do to a person's heart and soul, he's not talking about Bill Gates. He's talking about us. We are the rich. We are the wealthy. When we read these verses, we need to read us now today because globally at the moment and historically, we are some of the most wealthy people in the history of the human race. And Paul's big point is to say that along with this wealth comes Danger. Wealth is like fire. It's good, it's a valuable tool, but it's dangerous. And so last week we talked about the dangers of money, the the love of money and the destruction that can bring. Trusting in wealth rather than God, becoming oppressors of the poor, the, the worry and anxiety that it can lead to, the fact that money removes restraint because all of a sudden you have so much more power and freedom in society and culture and it can build pride and arrogance in us. And kids, we watched a video, didn't we, that uh, told us a little bit about one man uh, who was rather foolish in the way that he trusted in money. So we had this story of the wealthy man where Jesus said to his disciples, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told his disciples this parable, the ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest, a lot of grain. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But can any kids remember what happened to the man that very night? Josiah? He died. That's right. God said to him, you fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then, you will get what you, then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich towards God. And so at the halfway point of this sermon, this two-part sermon, we got to a point where we briefly mentioned that as the antidote, the cure for all of these dangers of wealth is to understand that true wealth comes from Christ, not in the form of the earthly blessings that he gives to us, but in the heavenly blessings that all those who believe in Jesus have. And so we look briefly at Ephesians 1 where it says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. If we are going to navigate well the dangers of wealth, we need to understand what true wealth really is. It's being at peace with God. It's knowing our creator. It's being at home in the family of God. It's the forgiveness of sins that leads to the possibility of eternal life with God through faith in Christ. If we understand that true wealth is what we have by faith in him, that it's not earned, it's not based on where we were born, it's not based on the skills or the talents that we have, but rather on God's grace and the salvation that he's given to all who believe and trust in him. If that's our starting point, if we understand that it doesn't matter how many millions of dollars, how many billions of dollars I have stacked up over here, what true wealth is is the salvation that all who believe have in Christ. 
That's got to be the starting point because then we can see earthly wealth for what it is. But here's the interesting thing. We can see earthly wealth both, both as the dangerous thing that it is, but also the good thing that it is. And that's where there's a tension here. Because wealth is a dangerous thing, and yet the Bible nowhere tells us, get rid of your wealth. It's got all sorts of warnings to those who are rich, who are wealthy, but the cure for wealthiness is not actually getting rid of wealth and riches, but rather it's doing wealth well. And so that's what we're going to think about today. We're going to think about some blessings of wealth. But before that, I just want to drive home this point that wealth really is good, because I think this is a confusing one for us. And again, we need to understand it well. In light of the true riches that we have in Christ, that worldly wealth is still a good thing. And so we saw that or heard that in the reading that Ursula gave for us before. The the, the reward for God's people in the Old Testament for obeying the Lord Jesus was worldly wealth. He talks about all the the crops of your land, the young of your livestock, the calves of your herds, and the lambs of your flocks. In an agricultural society, these things represented wealth. The Lord will grant you abundant prosperity was the promise. Your, Your storehouses will be full of bounty. These are things that the Lord gave to them, and there's no question that these were good gifts. And we constantly see through Scripture that the product of wisdom, again, is going to be Wealth. The wise store up choice food and olive oil, but fools gulp down, gulp theirs down. Whoever pursues righteousness and love finds life, prosperity, and honor. And so there's this tension in Scripture where wealth is this dangerous thing, and yet simultaneously, again and again, the Scriptures say that if you live wisely, even if you pursue righteousness, typically speaking, that's going to end up with you prospering in some form or another. Now, We're not talking about equality, and this is why it's so important for understand riches in that relative sense, because it's not a promise that all of us are going to live, you know, on luxury yachts and have private jets and all this sort of stuff. But we need to understand, at least as we look around the room, that we already are very, very wealthy people once again. And so it's really important for us to understand that wealth is a good thing and a dangerous thing. And the question is, not how do we get rid of it, but how do we do wealth well? So, what we're going to do is we're going to work through these six blessings of wealth. And I'm going to use these as sort of launching points for us to think about what it looks like for us to do wealth well. Because if we understand what these blessings are, what wealth is good for, biblically speaking, then we can use the wealth that we've been given well. Because this is the other thing, guys. We need to own the fact that we are wealthy. We need to own the fact that even compared to most Australians, we live in a fairly wealthy, you know, upper middle class area, and we, we've talked about this before. No point denying any of these things. We have, we have to own this and understand it. But we've also got to think through ethically what it means, because it is complex. Because if we, if we just want to live in this area, there's a certain amount of wealth that we must already possess. And for most of us, if we were going to give away worldly wealth, it doesn't just mean giving away the money. It also probably means giving away this area, this place, this church, these relationships. And so this is a complex thing that we can't easily get away from. And so if you're looking for easy answers, I probably don't have them for you. But what I want to do is give you the principles and the tools so that you can be thinking through what it looks like to try and do wealth well. 
So, point number one, uh, wealth can be used to honor God. Right, wealth is a tool that we can honor the Lord with. So in Proverbs 3, it says, Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing, and your vats will brim over with new wine. This is a part of a general principle that we see in Scripture that whatever you do, do it for the Lord. Whatever area of life that you are investing yourself into, you should do it for God. And our wealth is absolutely no different. And what's amazing is, is that kids, I've got a video for you guys here now in particular, but grown-ups can learn from this one too. We get a story of Jesus who sees a woman use a vast amount of wealth in an extravagant way to honor God. And we'll see what, her, what the disciples react to that. So let's play this one. This time, the Jewish people were getting ready to celebrate a festival called Passover that had been celebrated since the time of Moses when God brought his people out of Egypt. Two days before the Passover, Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon. Hey, 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 come on in! A man who had previously had leprosy. While Jesus was eating, a woman came in with a beautiful jar of expensive perfume. She broke the jar open and poured perfume over Jesus' head. Jesus' disciples were upset when they saw this. They said, what a waste. It could have been sold for a high price and the money given to the poor. What'd you do that for? So they scolded the woman. Ah, hold on there. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why criticize her for doing such a good thing to me? You will always have the poor among you, and you can help them whenever you want to, but you will not always have me. She has poured this perfume on me to prepare my body for burial. I tell you the truth, wherever the good news is preached throughout the world, this woman's deed will be remembered. All right, so it's a really interesting story. So it's a good ad, so we should... You know. um, <laughs> It's a really, okay, interesting story because there's this tension here between what do we do with wealth. Now, for those of you that know that story well, uh, the disciple that's sort of saying, hey, we should you know, sell it for a high price to give it to the poor, his motives weren't exactly pure. All right, that, was, that was Judas. He had intentions to, to, to steal that money. But either way, in the context of the story, there's this tension between what do I do with wealth? Do, do, must I give it to the poor? To which Jesus says, actually... Using your wealth, and you guys need to remember, we think jar of perfume, all right, we think a few hundred bucks, like a, like a luxury item, but you know, back in the day, this is tens of thousands of dollars, like getting up towards 80 grand sort of figures in terms of how much that perfume actually would have been worth. It's an extravagant act of worship that this woman performs when she breaks this perfume and, and pours it over Jesus. I remember as a young Christian, uh, one of my mentors saying to me, he pointed out to an article of this new Catholic church that had been built, gold you know, everywhere, extravagant, all this sort of stuff. And he's like, you know, is this a good thing to do? And I was kind of like, no, this is kind of gross. Like all this, this you, know, you know, surely there would have been better ways to use that money. And he kind of just pointed out to me, yeah, but is, is this not a way to worship and honor God? And I was like, oh, okay. Like it, it's grinding for us, right? Now, there are many ways that we can honor God with our wealth and with our money. 
But the important point here is that Jesus said, even beyond the immediate needs of the poor, which we will always have with us, and we'll talk about in just a second, our first responsibility with our wealth is to seek to honor God with it. So that's the, that's the general big principle. Talk about the blessing of money. It's an opportunity to honor God. That's fundamental. Okay? So wealth can be used to honor God. Number two, wealth can be used to care for the poor. This is, this is where it gets complex, right? Because these things are often going to be in tension with one another. But there is no doubt that caring for the poor is a responsibility that Christians are meant to be incredibly invested in, especially if you are wealthy. So in Deuteronomy 15, it says, If anyone is poor among your fellow Israelites in any of the towns of the land that the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted towards them. And then a little bit later, he says, Give generously to them and do so without a grudging heart. Then because of the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in everything you put your hand to, there will always be poor people in the land Therefore, I commend you to be open-handed towards your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. Now, those of you that are listening well, you might have noticed Jesus quotes from this in rebuking the disciples, and he says, you will always have the poor with you, and you can give to them whenever you like, but you will not always have me. This act of honor that this woman has done is a good thing to be valued and to be upheld, but it doesn't override this responsibility that we have to care for the poor. After Jesus' death and resurrection and the Spirit of God falls at Pentecost, we get this story. It says, With great power the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them that, all of them, that among all of them there was no needy person. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. Those who had land and houses, the wealthy among them, were the ones that took the most responsibility to sell what they had and share and distribute. Now, again, this is important. This is a description of what happened. It's not a prescription of what you must do. But you can see that that weight of responsibility to care for those without need led to extravagant acts of sacrificing wealth and of generosity. In James 2, it says, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith and has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose, suppose a brother or sister without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, Go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, is not, if not accompanied by actions, is dead. Now, here's the interesting thing. As, as a minister, I've actually wrestled with this one long and hard because there's a question here of who has the responsibility to care for the poor. And, and where I've landed, I don't have time to totally unpack this, but if you want to talk about it later, we can. The church as an institution does not have the primary responsibility of caring for the poor. All right, when Jesus gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, he did so for the building up of the saints, for the work of the ministry. I don't think that the church leaders are meant to be spending their time on organizing things for the poor, typically speaking. But I do believe that the body of Christ, all of us as Christians who have been richly blessed by God, share this burden together. 
And there may be things that we as a church and the leadership can do to help organize and structure some things. But when we think about the church caring for the poor, if you guys think in your head, yeah, 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 James and the elders and that should really get some stuff organized, that's the wrong way to think about it. It's the body of Christ, us all together, who has responsibility to care for the poor. And I think the truth is, guys, that there's a lot more that we can do in this space. We don't have anything organized at present, and I'm thinking through that, and this is going to be an ongoing conversation that we have, but here's the thing. It's not going to be something where we do a charity drive to get a whole bunch of money so that then we, the church, can figure out how to care for the poor, as in, again, our leadership, but rather it's going to look like something where maybe we organize things so that you guys can give directly, so that you guys can take your wealth, not go through two or three other parties to get it to the poor, but rather you guys in your own individual spaces, in your own individual neighborhoods with the people that you come across can be caring for the poor that are before you. Now, us too, obviously, as part of the body of Christ, but I think that's a really clear idea that we need to get in here because I think too often we think, yeah, yeah, the church should really do something about that and think leaders, church leaders, and not think all of us together sitting next to each other right now. But that, I think, is the the better theological framework for us to work with in this space. So first up, we seek to honor God. Second, money can be used to care for the poor. And for the wealthy, we have an extra responsibility because we have more, and so we can do more. And then just to continue to, to make this tricky and complex and have all these different competing goods, we have to recognize that money, one of the good things about money is it is indeed a shelter. Now, this is one of those classic verses that's making a different point, but if we sort of look behind the logic of it, we can see the principle. So it's talking about wisdom, but notice how it frames up the goodness of wisdom. It says, wisdom, like an inheritance, is a good thing and benefits those who see the sun. Wisdom is a shelter as money is a shelter. But the advantage of knowledge is this, wisdom preserves those who haven't. It's clearly saying wisdom is better than riches, but the way that it's doing that is by saying riches... Wealth, money is good because it does provide a shelter. Money does indeed protect us from many troubles and strifes in this world. Now, if we start to pursue money as the best way to protect ourselves from dangers and troubles, as we talked about last week, that will lead to all sorts of problems. But there's a thankfulness that should come when we recognize the wealth that we have, that we are spared from many discomforts and displeasures and pain and suffering because of the wealth that we enjoy here. But here's the thing again. We don't want to just then take that shelter and build fancier shelters for ourselves. Again, we want to use that wealth to be a shelter for others also. So can you see here, as we start to put this together as a package, we we, we start to get a little bit of sense of we want to honor God, and there's lots of different ways that we can do this. We can certainly care for the poor, and if we're wealthy, we have a responsibility to do that. And we, it's good that money is a shelter, but we don't want to be selfish with it. Those things all sort of fit together. And then uh, this next one, this is kind of a crazy one. So uh, point number four, wealth can win friends and influence people. Now, I tried to find a video for this one that I couldn't, so I went throughout the church, and I found some theater kids uh, that were able to help me with this. So do you guys want to come up uh, here and... Uh, Kids, this is a good chance for you guys to, to check out what's going on here. Uh, yep, yep, places, places. Thank you. Come forward. Get yourself set. Good. One, two. 
Got your, uh, you're all turned on there, buddy? Daniel, you good? You on? Excellent. All right, I'm going to get out of the way and let these guys tell us the Bible story from Luke chapter 16, verses 1 to 9. The parable of the shrewd manager. Jesus told his disciples there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in. And asked him, what's this I've heard about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be my manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what will I do? My master has taken my job away. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm too ashamed to beg. I know, I'll do something so that when I lose my job, I'll be welcomed into people's homes. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first one, How much do you owe my master? 900 barrels of oil. He replied, Take your bill and make it 450. Then he shooed the first one out and asked the second, how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat. He replied, sit down quickly and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted truly. <laughs> For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself, so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into, into, into eternal dwellings. All right. Thank you, theater kids. You can make your way back to offstage, chairs, wherever, you know, party it up. Cool. All right. So, it's a weird story. I don't know if you, uh, you know, you've got to kind of read it a couple of times to really get your head into it because we've got this true manager who seems to have done the wrong thing and then has this brilliant idea of self-preservation and so he goes out and gets the, the, the master's debtors to sort of have a discount and all that sort of stuff so that when he gets fired from his job, he's going to be welcomed into their homes and we kind of expect the message of the story to be some sort of rebuke or criticism of this shrewd manager, but it's the parable of the shrewd manager because he's actually commended for his shrewdness. Jesus says the master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. It's a weird one, right? Like you sort of read it and you're like, is this saying what I think it's saying? But it's pretty plain. Use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves. And, and here's the thing I think we, we need to understand that this is a, a wisdom principle that Jesus is explaining. He's not commending the dishonesty, obviously, but that this man acted cleverly and astutely, recognizing the situation, and he used the tools that he had at his disposal 
to do something good. Now, in this instance, it was for his own good. But for us, as Christians, we need to recognize that, again, money is a tool that we should be wise with to achieve good ends. Now, like I said, it's a bit of a weird one. I don't have time to unpack it fully. I'm sure that you've got a bunch of different questions. But just this simple principle, though, right? Wealth is something that we can use to have influence with with people. And that that's not necessarily a bad thing. Now, we don't want to manipulate. We don't want to be dishonest ourselves. We, We don't want to use it for underhanded means. But the idea, again, of using our wealth to create opportunities even to get into places that if we did not have that wealth, we would not be able to go, these are not bad ideas in and of themselves. Now, if you're going to do it well, we absolutely, again, need to make sure that we're not creating opportunities for ourselves because of the love of money, because of material things, because we want to make Uh, an entrance into a higher status of society or we need to get more pats on the back because of all the incredible successes we've had. We're not talking about that. We're talking about just recognizing that as one of the good things that wealth brings is opportunity. And we need to be wise in the way that we use it. We have this building because lots of people were wise with their money. We've got a facility here that's going towards God's purposes and will be for many decades to come because of those who are wise with their money and were able to create awesome opportunities. Some of you may very well be serving the Lord now because you made friends with somebody, maybe through wealth or job connections or this sort of stuff. And so again, it's just reinforcing the complexity of this picture. Wealth should be used to honor God. We can care for the poor. It is a good thing that protects us from shelter, and we can absolutely use our wealth to create all sorts of opportunities for relationship that we can use to serve God's kingdom. Number five, flowing off the back of this exact parable, Jesus continues on to make this point. Wealth is an opportunity to prove trustworthiness. Jesus says right after that parable, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you've not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? One of the ways that we prove our faithfulness, that we prove that we are a trustworthy people, one of the ways that we actually show that we are ready to have bigger responsibility to handle true riches not in the sense of earning our salvation, but rather being given responsibilities that go beyond just worldly wealth, is by showing ourselves to be faithful with the finances that we've been given. To show ourselves responsible with whatever God has given us now in this season. That if if we are faithful with what we have now, God will give us more. This is one of those things that, again, really challenges people because Jesus, for the most part, does not make any promises about equality between us. People will be given different contexts with different blessings and different gifts. Some of us were born into very privileged positions. Some of us have had to work very hard to get where we were, even as we recognize the bigger context of Australia. But the interest here is not so much in making sure that we're all equal, but rather in whatever God has given us now in this moment to prove ourselves faithful with it. And so amongst us, we're going to have different levels of wealth, even in this context of us being incredibly wealthy globally. 
And the question is not is what that person with more doing that I should be asking, but rather with what I have right now, am I being faithful to serve the Lord with it? For our students amongst us, I don't expect you guys to be giving in straight dollar terms anywhere near as much as what others are, but I do want to challenge you, whatever little you have, to be faithful with it now. And for those of you that have made much more, I want you to recognize that whatever incredible amount is in your bank account, that is still a small thing that you need to prove yourself faithful with if you're going to be entrusted with more true riches and true responsibility in part of God's kingdom. That's doing wealth well. And then the last of our six points for today is wealth can be shared to build God's kingdom. Kids, many of you guys will know this story from Level Up, but it's worth thinking about again. So let's play this next one to think about. Slapstick Theater. Lydia. This is Lydia, who worshipped God and was a dealer in purple cloth. One day, Lydia was with a group of women by a river. Oh, hey! Paul and Silas came and started speaking to the women. As she listened to them, God helped her to understand and believe in what they were saying. Oh, wow! She and her whole household were baptized. Lydia asked Paul and Silas to come and stay in her home. Okay. Paul and Silas stayed with Lydia many times as she always opened her home to them. All right, quick story, but here's the important points. Uh, Kids, what did Lydia deal in? What was her job? Yeah? She did worship Jesus. That was absolutely what she did. But what was her job? Does anybody know? Are you helping him out? Anyone? Let's see. Noah. Selling purple cloth. Now, in the ancient world, purple was the symbol of royalty. If you were selling purple cloth, you had some high-end customers, okay? Lydia is a wealthy woman, as shown by the fact that she can also invite Paul and the other disciples to come and stay with her in her home. She had wealth, she had means, and she welcomed them again and again. And she was the first of the believers in Europe, but also in the city of Philippi. And what's really interesting is, is that the Philippians become an example that Paul goes back to again and again of those who generously give to God's kingdom. And it starts with the example of this wealthy woman, Lydia. So this is what Paul writes about in the letters to the Philippians. Remember, the same city in which Lydia became a Christian. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out for Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me more and more than once when I was in need. Then he goes on to say, not that I desire your gifts, what I desire is that more be credited to your account. I've received full payment and have more than enough. I'm amply supplied now that I've received from Ephroditus the gifts that you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. 
He doesn't want them to give because he's greedy or because he wants the money for himself, but rather he recognizes that for God's people, them being generous is a good thing that puts credit in their account. It speaks to them and their godliness and the things that they are doing well with what they've been given. And Paul, even though the Philippians do not seem to be a particularly wealthy church themselves, Paul loves to keep pointing back to them when he is speaking to a wealthy church to use them as a comparison to say, if this is what the Philippians can do, then you wealthy Christians should do also and more. So in the second letter to the Corinthians, he says, and now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify, they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in the service to the Lord's people. They were in the midst of severe trial. They were not particularly wealthy, but they begged Paul to please let us give to the work that you were doing. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves, first of all, to the Lord, honor the Lord with your wealth, and then by the will of God, also to us. So we urged Titus, just as he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in love that we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in the grace of giving. Paul is writing to a wealthy, talented, educated, capable, amazing church filled with super talented people who have a tendency to get a little carried away with their awesomeness. And he says, though, just as you seek to excel in all these different things, make sure that you also excel in the grace of giving. Now, in typical Paul fashion, when he brings a challenge like this, he's like, I'm not saying you have to do it. I'm not commanding you. But I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, For your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. And then lastly he says, and here is my judgment about what is best for you in this matter. Last year you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. The reason I think these words are particularly good for us is because I look around this church and I see all sorts of generosity. If you compare our giving, like as a percentage by by household giving and all that sort of stuff and compare it to the church worldwide, we're like two and a half times beyond what the average is in churches worldwide. But that includes all churches everywhere. So the percentage of of income that we give is two and a half times the average percentage of income given across the world. But we're more than two and a half times wealthier than most, aren't we? And so we've started a good work. This church is generous in all sorts of different ways. 
As a church, we have money in the bank to continue to maintain this property, to continue to invest in ministry and all this sort of stuff. But the thing is, we can't simply say we've been generous and leave it there. We have to continue to seek to finish this work well. We have to continue to seek to excel at generosity. And that means continuing to reevaluate. That means continuing to assess, are we giving well? Are we doing wealth well? What sacrifices are we making? What sacrifices are we not willing to make? Now, this sermon has not been about generosity. Our generosity is a very connected category, but it's a slightly different one. But generosity applies to both the poor and the wealthy. Generosity is something that all Christians need to be doing. My challenge for us is, as a wealthy church, what does it look like for us to be generous, to to follow these six principles? To seek to honour God, to seek to care for the poor, to be thankful for the shelter that we have, to be wise in the way that we win friends with the wealth that we have, to, to be faithful in all that we're doing with our wealth. And what does it look like for us to share, to build God's kingdom? Now, like I said, I don't have easy answers. And I'm not going to lie, it's not a coincidence that we're doing this right before budget season, but, but it's not because I, I, I'm, I'm trying to put the hard word on you guys and make you feel guilty or anything like that. I want to do two things. I want to say, you guys have been really, really generous and that's awesome. And I'm deeply thankful for that spirit that I see amongst us. But we also need to keep going with that work. That we need to keep evaluating, we need to seek to keep giving. And as we do that, it's going to be good for our souls. It's going to be good for the poor, and it's going to be good for the kingdom. So I'm going to leave the specifics of your finances to you in the sense of what concretely you might like to do. There might be people in your life that you want to talk to. As husbands and wives, you need to make decisions together. And we'll talk more about this in the months and years to come. But let's seek to do wealth well, respecting the danger thankful for the blessings and following God in all that we do. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for the Lord Jesus and all that he has done for us. Thank you for the true wealth that we have in him. Thank you that he has been richly generous to us in, in the sacrifice of his son. That God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son in that most extraordinary act of generosity. And we pray, Father, that as we know true riches in Christ, that we would then seek to do wealth well with all the material things that you've blessed us with. That we'd recognize the dangers and be wise and the effect that money can have on our soul and the love of money and what it can do to us and to our families. And at the same time, Lord, be thankful for the blessings that we enjoy. And that we would seek to use the wealth to to serve your purposes in this world to honour you, to care for the poor, to be trustworthy, to give to your kingdom. And we pray, Father, as we do these things, that your name would be honoured above all else. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.